You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. The following are excerpts from the launch of the Interim Report of the Task Force on Extremism in Fragile States, which took place on September 11th, 2018. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Jason. And it's uh, really wonderful to be able to co-host this evening in partnership with the Bipartisan Policy Center. And I'm delighted to welcome so many distinguished guests, um, many partners and special friends uh, for our program this evening with a special welcome to our keynote speaker, the Director of National Intelligence, Daniel Coates. Um, as, as Jason has outlined, you know, we're gathering for the anniversary of the worst terrorist attack in our nation's history. And we're reminded once again of the urgency of our mission to build peace and to resolve conflict around the world. USIP was, in fact, founded um, by Congress in 1984 by war veterans who were weary of their war experiences in World War II and the Korean War, and established USIP with the mission of uh, working to resolve international conflicts around the world. And we, were, we are dedicated uh, to the idea that peace is very possible, it's also quite practical, and it is absolutely essential for our national security. And so we work with partners around the world in the pursuit of peace in very practical ways to resolve conflict. Um, we're delighted to be able to use our global headquarters for these kinds of gatherings, bringing people together ac from across disciplines, different experiences, different political persuasions, and that's... Uh, why it's a particular pleasure to partner with BPC to honor two exceptional Americans. And tonight, uh, as we honor Congressman Hamilton and Governor Kane, um, we are able to reflect on their long career as public servants for their immeasurable contributions to American security. And just to underscore uh, one of Jason's point, more importantly than ever, for the example they provide of how great leaders put political differences aside uh, for greater national good. Um, and at a time when it greatly mattered, uh, Tom and Lee stepped up to serve as chairs of the 9-11 Commission, which produced a landmark document that led to the overhauling of our national security infrastructure and protected our homeland from future attacks. And so in the years since that report was released, we've seen the adoption of many of their recommendations um, on a bipartisan basis uh, that enabled us to successfully weaken terrorist organizations abroad, um, and most importantly, to protect the homeland from another mass casualty attack. But one crucial recommendation from the 9-11 report remains unfilled. And even 14 years ago, Tom and Lee foresaw the need and included in the report uh, the recommendation to develop a comprehensive strategy that goes beyond responding to violent extremism and focused on preventing its rise in the first place. And in the words of their report, a preventive strategy that is as much or more political as it is military. 
we've seen that without this, this successful prevention strategy in place, that terrorism, in fact, has continued to spread. And the number of, a terror the number of terrorist attacks worldwide have gone from fewer than 2,000 in 2001 to more than 10,000 in 2017. And we're seeing that extremists have in particular gained a foothold in the fragile states where the social contract between government and their people is fundamentally broken and where they find fertile ground for recruiting aggrieved, disenfranchised societies and in particular youth. And they win public sympathy by providing the services that their governments in those countries do not. So last year, USIP, as it often is, was directed by Congress to convene a task force. And this task force is to tackle the issues um, that lead to the spread of terrorism in fragile states. And we were asked to develop a comprehensive strategy for tackling extremism with a focus on the Sahel, the Near East, and the Horn of Africa. And we are enormously grateful that Governor Kane and Congressman Hamilton once again answered the call for public service and really saw this as the complete, completion of an arc from their very important work on the 9-11 Commission. And they are joined in this effort by a very thoughtful bipartisan task force, a number of whom are here with us today. Could I ask you to stand, our commission members, our, t our task force members, uh, Senator Ayat, uh, Ambassador Eikenberry, Ambassador Dobriansky, our board chair, Steve Hadley, uh, uh, Farouk Kathwari, and thank you. Thank you, each of you, for the, oh, Ambassador Johnny Carson. The task force is further supported by a group of senior advisors, uh, many of whom are also here with us today, and we thank all of you for the ideas, the commitment, and the energy that you're putting into the task force. So our program tonight gives us an opportunity not only to reflect on and honor the legacy of Tom and Lee, but also to look forward to the culmination of their efforts through their work with the task force today. Under their leadership, the task force has produced an interim report. You'll find it at your seats. Um, and this report serves to underscore the interlocking nature of the challenges posed by fragility and extremism. Um, over the next few months, these interim findings will inform a final report, which will include very specific concrete proposals for how do we turn a decade of learning and scholarship into action that matters. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. We welcome everybody's good thoughts and ideas. Um, and most of all, we extend our gratitude to Congressman Hamilton and Governor Kane for picking up this challenge once again. So with that, thank you once again for joining us. Um, we're delighted to have this evening together uh, and enjoy your dinners. Please welcome the Director of National Intelligence, the Honorable Daniel Coates. Well, Jason and Nancy, thank you. <clears throat> Institute for Peace, thank you for the honor to uh, 
speak to you this evening. It's a, I'm still doing a little bit of, that one came real quick. Uh, <clears throat> it's always a danger to be speaking before dinner is served. You do have salads on your table. Um, my only thought here is, as my mother continually told me as a child, please keep your mouth closed when you chew, but I urge you to chew. The other thing that came to my mind was the uh, story about the pastor delivering a wonderful sermon and greeting those parishioners on the way out, beaming because he thought he really delivered a good sermon. And uh, got all the accolades and Maud came up to him, regular attender forever, she said, Pastor, yes, that was. He said, what did you think of my sermon? He said, I thought it was, it was very good, um, I, but I believe you missed a, a critical opportunity. He said, opportunity for what? She said, to quit. <laughs> I make it to the point this evening where if you look hungry enough, I might have to quit in the middle. But I want to thank, uh, thank you for the honor of being here and talking to you. I've, I've enjoyed a long partnership with by, <clears throat> excuse me, the Bipartisan Policy, Policy Center. <clears throat> Following my return from Germany, I served as co-chair along with then-Senator, well, former Senator and my former Senate colleague, Chuck Robb. Little did I know, it was on the Iran Task Force, uh, little did I know then that I would be standing here today as Director of National Intelligence and virtually every morning reading or looking or asking what happened in Iran last night. So it's a pleasure to know that um, BPC in combination with the Institute for Peace is still putting out great programs, great information that is a value to those policymakers that will be taking a look at this. It will be a value to this country for what you're doing, and you have some terrific people here uh, to do that. I want to acknowledge my former colleague, uh, Kelly Ayotte, um, who I had the distinct privilege of serving with. Kelly, I miss you. The Senate misses you. The country misses you. And we hope that uh, you will continue to see and seize opportunities to serve your country because I know how much you love your country. And I'm glad that you're here doing what you're, what you're doing, and others. <laughs> Governor Keating just told me he's moving back home. I moved back home, and uh, now I'm back here. So be, be careful. Be really careful. Um, Chuck Robb and I had a, a terrific time working together, and um, another good friend is in the audience, Jim Slattery. Uh, I'm a Republican, he's a Democrat. We actually like each other. Uh, so Jim, I know you're part of this commission also. Uh, my respect for the BPC um, um, approach to the way they do things, just the facts, analysis and actionable solutions to our nation's key challenges is what we're looking for in the intelligence agency. And we do get just the facts from that on a bipartisan basis uh, along with solutions and we very much appreciate that.
But tonight I'm really here to honor and pay tribute to two great American patriots. Congressman Lee Hamilton and Governor Tom Keene and reflect on their legacy and contributions to our nation's counterterrorism efforts. As a fellow Hoosier and cherished colleague in the Congress, and Lee, sorry that you can't be here, fully understand, but you're here in spirit, I know. Lee is a longtime friend and former colleague. Lee has earned great respect from members of both sides of the aisle for his exceptional leadership on matters of foreign policy and national security. He served as an example with his formative intellect, his tireless work ethic, and nonpartisanship. I'm not surprised that Lee signed up, Tom, along with you, for this next step. And you know what a privilege it is to work with Lee. And while our political careers have some parallels, Lee achieved many milestones, including one that I will always envy and never achieve. He was inducted into the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame. <clears throat> Trust me, as far as Hoosiers are concerned, nothing else you can do in life comes close to that achievement. And Tom Keene's lifetime of service to this nation and higher education is truly remarkable. From governor of New Jersey to co-chair of the 9-11 Commission to president of Drew University, Tom is widely respected for his approach to leadership and his willingness and ability to work with others to achieve a common goal. So we gather to honor these two men on the somber anniversary of September 11. I stood this morning at the Pentagon during the ceremony on the side of the Pentagon where our son-in-law, as a young Army captain, was serving. Uh, Marcia and I had been in Germany just the weekend before, uh, starting our ambassadorship. Uh, September 11 was uh, the second day on my job. Um, when, the, um, when I noticed that the plane uh, flew into that portion of the Pentagon, I knew that's exactly where our son-in-law was. Uh, his uh, commanding officer was killed, uh, as was uh, one of his aides. Uh, he miraculously uh, survived all that, so it, uh, that moment came back to me in a very personal way. And we are grateful that he survived, and we regret that so many lives were lost. As I said, I, we had arrived in Germany uh, just uh, the weekend before, and very, literally my very first activity after saying hello to all the staff uh, the very next day, I had asked the staff to find someone who could best provide the experience of the relationship between the United States and Germany post-war. And so at our residence, uh, up the driveway came a German citizen, 88 years old, of Jewish descent named Dr. Ernst Kramer. His life story was remarkable and inspiring, and it speaks to the importance of service to a cause greater than oneself. As a young teenage man, 
he and his entire extended family were sent to Buchenwald. After their arrival, the family cobbled together whatever valuables they had and managed to smuggle him out of the camp and into the hands of people who could send him to the United States. Shortly thereafter, then 17-year-old Ernst wound up living on a farm in Mississippi where he attended his senior year of high school. That year was 1941. The very morning after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Ernst said, I'm not going to the high school today. I'm going to the Army Recruiting Center. I want to go back. I want to join the military and go back and free my people in Germany. He landed early on the beaches of Normandy and ultimately was part of the team that liberated Buchenwald, only to learn that his entire family had been murdered in the Holocaust. He vowed never to let it happen again and became a stalwart for U.S.-German relations for the rest of his life. Still going at 88, he had been editor of the largest circulated newspaper in Germany and wrote regular columns about our relationship. As we finished lunch, our focus turned to the issue of future threats to our respective nations. Dr. Kramer shared with me that his growing concern about terrorism and radical ideology, believing that this would be the biggest challenge to the free world in years ahead. Unknown to us, as we were concluding our discussion, the first plane hit the World Trade Center's North Tower. As I walked, to him, as I walked him to the door and said goodbye, my staff rushed in and said, turn on CNN. Marcia and I watched with horror as a second plane crashed into the second tower. And then news reports came in about another missing plane and an explosion at the Pentagon. To use the words of the 9-11 Commission's report, on that day, at that time, the United States became a nation transformed. And that day, and our nation's response to the attacks would define my tour in Germany. And back home, it forced our nation to rethink our approach to national security. Lee and Tom were once again asked to serve their nation. They were charged with leading the 9-11 Commission to evaluate what had happened and how we could prevent it from happening again. And under their leadership, the Commission delivered an unflinching and bipartisan analysis of what went wrong. In many ways, the Commission's final report contains valuable lessons and important historical information related to terrorist activities in the decade prior to the attacks that remain relevant today to today's threat environment. And they offered recommendations that provided the basis for reforms of our intelligence and national security architecture in 2005. This included the creation of the National Counterterrorism Center and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Little did I know at the time that I would one day serve in this position. The intelligence community that I have the privilege to lead today is the result of Lee and the result of Tom and that commission. And that decision, now 12 years later, has left us with a more integrated, more capable, and more technologically advanced than it has ever been. 
To demonstrate how far we've come, let me paint a picture for you of what our National Counterterrorism Center looks like today. NCTC is the counterterrorism hub for the entire intelligence community. A round-the-clock operation, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours on three shifts. Step inside and poke your head in NTCC's, NCTC's operations center and you'll notice a buzz of activity as officers monitor the latest reports from around the globe, including as many as a thousand or more cables and reports every single day. Open a conference room and you'll see NCTC officers leading one of several interagencies VTCs convened every day to maintain situational awareness across the U.S. government on the latest CT threats. And as you stroll through the hallways, you might bump into a CIA officer, an FBI agent, or a local first responder, or a military representative, or an operations officer, all here on rotation at NCTC to contribute to a common mission and serve as ambassadors from their home organizations. For anyone who has been involved in the standing up of a new government organization or assembling an interagency team, you know that it was no small feat to realize Lee and Tom's vision. Before 9-11, no organization in the U.S. government had access to all CT information. Now, NCTC analysts have direct access to foreign and domestic threat information from networks all across the government. CIA, NSA, FBI, DOD, DHS, to name a few. Before 9-11, there was no single electronic library of terrorism-related information. Now NCTC maintains a central repository that officials from all around the government can access with the click of a key. Before 9-11, there were four databases of known and suspected terrorists and 13 watch lists. Now we have a single database of terrorists and a single watch list which, with instant access by all our agencies. And before 9-11, there was no concerted effort to integrate CT operations. And now NCTC leads efforts to bring all elements of state power to bear against CT threats. The, this integrated approach to CT is a model for the rest of the intelligence community. And we're applying some of the lessons learned from our counterterrorism efforts to other transnational problem sets, counterintelligence, cyber, transnational organized crime, and counterproliferation. As Director of National Intelligence, I'm focusing on these same principles, info sharing, intel integration, and incorporating disparate viewpoints to ensure that the intelligence community all 17 agencies delivers the best possible intelligence to our policymakers. The United States and allied efforts over the past 17 years have thwarted dozens of plots and thoroughly disrupted terrorist capabilities. We have particularly degraded their capacity to conduct large-scale 9-11 style external operations. But as far as we've come and as good as we are today, we know that we cannot rest. Because the threat landscape has changed dramatically and demands our constant attention. In addition to a complex terrorism landscape that is global, we now face a great power competition 
delicate negotiations with North Korea, a pervasive cyber threat, and the troubling use of chemical weapons against civilians in the war-torn rubble of Syria and the peaceful paved streets of Salisbury, England. The complexity of the terrorist threat today is most evident when you compare it to the centralized, large-scale plotting we saw from Al-Qaeda in 2001. Today, the threat is global, it's less centralized, and in many cases, harder to detect. And if history has taught us anything, it is that this fight will not end, unfortunately, anytime soon. We have simply entered a new phase in the post-9-11 counterterrorism fight. Despite significant setbacks in Syria and Iraq, ISIS' ability to launch an insurgency and carry out terrorist attacks abroad has not yet been sufficiently diminished. We continue to see members of this group pursue and develop creative and alarming methods of attack. Dispersing throughout the globe, yes, in many ungoverned places. Meanwhile, Al-Qaeda has evolved as it dealt with the loss of many leaders. Today, the group's leadership is concentrated in the Middle East, where they have a greater ability to operate and remain an enduring threat to the United States. And both ISIS and Al-Qaeda continue to inspire attacks by radicalized, homegrown, violent extremists. We also face a growing, a growing terrorist threat from Iran and its terrorist, uh, terrorist allies. Tehran remains the most prominent state sponsor of terrorism in the world. So, as we look to the future, we must continue to identify and counter enduring drivers that are sustaining terrorist resilience and regeneration. And one of those key drivers is what Lee and Tom have focused on with the Task Force on Extremism in Fragile States. The weak or non-existent government and governance in fragile and failing states and its socioeconomic consequences. All of the terrorist groups I have referenced are working to expand their influence in, un in unstable regions. They're exploiting degraded local security conditions in pursuit of safe haven, in pursuit of resources or recruits. These activities remind us of the importance of using non-military levers, including economic assistance and humanitarian aid, to counter terrorist influence and undermine their presence. And thus, the Bipartisan Policy Center's work and the Institute of Peace work to study these dynamics and identify elements of a, of a preventive strategy is instructive to our long-term counterterrorism efforts. While we must maintain our CT pressure, it will be our efforts to address the underlying drivers of terrorism that will ultimately yield success in this generational struggle. I would like to close here by offering once again my congratulations to you, Tom, Lee, my congratulations to you, my friend, for the, your extraordinary service to our nation. On this day, when we remember and reflect on the tragedy of 9-11, it is fitting that we honor these two leaders who have set aside partisan differences to find solutions that makes our country stronger and who have helped guide our nation's efforts to counter the scourge of terrorism. To borrow a slightly modified praise from the Bible to acknowledge the work of Lee and Tom, well done, good and faithful public servants. Thank you.
Please welcome the distinguished members of the Task Force on Extremism and Fragile States. The United States Institute of Peace Board Chair, Stephen Hadley, former Senator Kelly Ayotte, and the President of the United States Institute of Peace, Nancy Limborg. you will uh, continue to enjoy your meal as it uh, gets distributed <laughs> over the course of the evening. We'll try and get everybody through the dessert court. We're going to spend about 15-20 minutes uh, talking about the report and the reflections of these members of the task force on the report. Um, we'll probably do about enough time for just two rounds of questions. Uh, and let me begin, if I can, with Governor Kane, with you. There has not been a major terrorist attack in the U.S. since 9-11. Osama bin Laden is dead. The Islamic State's caliphate lies in rubble. So what's the problem here? Uh, why should policymakers be talking about preventing extremism now? And why would you, with all the things you could do, why would you then pick up the co-chairmanship of this task force? Well, Ewan, when we did, our commissioners did the 9-11 report, we basically talked about three things that needed to be done. One was obviously they had a sanctuary in Afghanistan, reach those people who did it and destroy them. That was number one. Secondly, we didn't want this to ever happen again or anything like it. So the second recommendation really was to harden our defenses to create Dan Coates and people of that stature to really coordinate our intelligence operation and make sure that we had the best defenses in the world as from a terrorist attack. And the third thing we said was when we've got to do some preventive measures to get at the ideology itself so we don't create more terrorists. Well, the first two we did, and we've done pretty successfully. The last, not so much. Uh, so this is really, in a sense, a continuation of the 9-11 work. It's to, it's to look and see where terrorists come from, where they breed, which is in failed states or fragile states, and see if we can do something about the breeding ground. What we said in our 9-11 report, we would not have had an attack if those terrorists hadn't been allowed to organize and be left alone for three years in Afghanistan to plot and to plan. If they hadn't been able to do that, they couldn't have pulled it off. We said don't ever allow that kind of place to exist again. Uh, we have to disrupt it. So this is, this is an effort and a continuation of our work. Sooner or later, these people, as they continue to spread, and there are 10 times more terrorist attacks last year than there were after 9-11, after Find a, way to, find a way to prevent terrorism. And the way to prevent terrorism is to work in these failed states or fragile states and make sure they're strong enough to prevent terrorism in those states themselves. Senator Ayat, let me ask you this question. Uh, every, almost every uh, think tank session you go to these days talking about national security challenges, people say, well, what we've seen is the emergence or the re-emergence of great power competition with Russia and China. Where does extremism and combating extremism rank in your view compared to the problem of dealing with Russia and China? 
And I think American air, many Americans would ask, given the problems presented by Russia and China, why should we pay attention to what's happening in the Sahel and the Middle East and North Africa? Uh, well, first of all, I, I just want to say it's a huge honor to be on this task force with Governor Kane and Congressman Hamilton, uh, given their incredible leadership. So. Why, why is this important? I mean, first of all, we know from the national defense strategy that, yes, great power strategic competition is a huge threat to us uh, from China and Russia, but also uh, identified in that strategy, which we all know in this room, and Governor Kane knows all too well, it describes uh, terrorism and extremism as a persistent condition. And unfortunately, it is a persistent condition. Uh, as uh, the Director of National Intelligence Coates said, uh, we're seeing a new phase in terrorism, and these areas that we are focusing on, on this commission, uh, the Sahel, the Near East, the Horn of Africa, unfortunately, these are very fragile areas, and there are other fragile areas around the world where we see uh, the continual breeding of extremism and terrorism that leads to a persistent threat to not only our homeland, but to our allies, and of course, uh, really what they tried to hit us on 9-11, which was our, our way of life. What we've also seen is this strategic competition. We've seen countries uh, like Russia and China in particular exploiting fragile states and exploiting this fragility actually to the harm of our security and the harm of the international order. Uh, well, we see that in Syria with Russia. We've seen that often with some of the investments in the way that uh, China handles uh, Africa and what they're doing there. And so these two very important national security issues are intertwined. Uh, they impact our security. And this idea of making sure that we prevent things from happening uh, before we have to deal with them, that, that's what you know, Dan Coates wakes up every day to do. Uh, but anything that we can do to help and advance his work before he gets that intelligence is certainly resources well spent. And that's, that's really the purpose of this commission. Let's talk a little about fragile states. President Lindbergh, the task force is charged not with preventing terrorism, but also very particularly addressing the underlying causes of extremism in fragile states. Why is it so important to, talk, to focus on fragile states? And when we talk about them, what are the conditions in fragile states that drive extremism? Thank you. Um, you know, every fragile state is fragile in its own way. But what we're seeing is some shared characteristics. They are usually states where the social contract between the government and its people uh, have broken down. And you usually have highly fragmented populations, uh, pervasive sense of injustice, lack of opportunities, both economic as well as social and political. So you have a large disenfranchised and aggrieved population who feel they have few choices in a state that is not responsive to their needs. And this is fertile ground for uh, extremist groups to recruit, 
to provide an alternative. And what we've seen is over the last decade and a half, the rise of extremism, particularly in fragile states and increasingly with the goal uh, to hold territory, whether it's Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Boko Haram in Nigeria, and of course ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And so in addition to the military capabilities to degrade their ability to hold territory, for us to really get ahead of this, we need to work in partnership with fragile states, with international partners, to really understand and address those underlying causes. Let me ask a follow-up question if I can. The situation in these st states is very complex. We've been working uh, for now 17 years in Afghanistan, some uh, 15 years in Iraq. And I think a lot of Americans wonder, can we really make a difference? Do we know what we're doing here? And are there examples where we have been able to help fragile states from falling into conflict and extremism or help fragile states to become more resistant to conflict and extremism? Well, one of the things that we're doing on the task force is to bring forward the many lessons um, from both the world of counterterrorism and violent extremism, as well as a lot of learnings about what goes on in fragile states. And we are seeing that sometimes at subnational levels, there is success in helping communities or regions become more resilient to the recruitment efforts um, of foreign fighter of uh, extremists. Um, one example, and it's a mixed example, and as you said, it's highly complicated, would be Tunisia, where even though they've had a great outflow of fighters to Syria and Iraq, there are also lots of examples of communities within Tunisia that have resisted the extremist recruitment efforts. And it is one of uh, the most important countries to have navigated uh, the turmoil over the last decade. Senator Ayat, a lot of Americans, I think, would say, you know, why is it that we have to do everything? And particularly, why is it that we have to pay for, for, uh, for carrying these burdens? What is the potential for other countries, either in the region or internationally or international institutions, to contribute to this, solving this problem? Well, I think that this is uh, obviously a threat to us, but it's a threat to our allies, it's a threat to the world, and um, in terms of the ability to live in peace, in, in international order, uh, with rule of law. And so I think we, one of the things we are going to focus on in this task force and are focusing on is also coalitions that can be built, uh, not only with our NATO partners, but the Arab nations and others. Uh, because this is something that, you know, I have a firm belief that the United States is the indispensable nation when it comes to leading in this regard, but we do need partners, and we should seek out partners. We should not have to do this alone, and that is one of the goals that we have in this commission, and frankly, we're not going to be effective if we try to go alone on issues that we're dealing with, with the fragility, with fragile states, with extremism, because this is something that we need the partners. We need the local partners on the ground. And that's one of the emphasis of, you've seen in our initial report and that we're all also focusing on because we need that commitment from the local partners 
when we are working with a country to be effective, uh, rather than just thinking that as the United States, we can solve it all ourselves. Governor Kane, last question for you. You and Congressman Hamilton were very effective in getting the 9-11 Commission recommendations implemented. Um, do you, what are the obstacles you see uh, in your way of getting the recommendations that are going to come out of this uh, task force dealing preventing uh, extremism, getting them to be implemented? And is it possible in the current environment to do as you two co-chairs have told the rest members of the task force that you want to develop a bipartisan consensus uh, in support of a strategy that could involve and be supported by both Congress and the President. Is that really possible in the, in the current environment we're in? Yes, um, I think it's possible. In fact, I was very encouraged today we were meeting with security people at the White House and the administration is getting ready the national security plan. And the first thing they said to me when I got there was, you know, we thought as we started to move through this process and talk to so many people that we would find the partisanship that's everywhere. I said, you know, we didn't find any. When you're dealing with national security issues, the partisanship seems to disappear. And that was very encouraging. And I think that's true. I mean, we're going to be partisan about keeping America safe. And that's something we should all be working together on. And we had it easier, frankly, in 9-11 because everybody was focused on 9-11. Uh, everybody was so shocked by what happened. Uh, with the families at our backs, everybody wanted recommendations put through and changes put through, which would make, it, make sure it never happened again. So we had a tremendous wind at our back in trying to, trying to get those recommendations through Congress. There was opposition, um, but we sort of overcame the opposition sooner or later because we had such a force on our side and it was bipartisan. Now, the problem we're going to have is that people are very distracted. There are so many things hitting everybody every day, I can't imagine serving in the Congress today. And being hit by the issues that you get hit with day after day after day after day, and you just want to address one and you get hit by six others. So somehow we're going to have to convince a bipartisan majority in Congress that this is important to get their attention, and this is important enough to keep their attention for long enough to get some bipartisan action going. And that's not going to be easy. We'll need, frankly, the help of all of you in this room and a lot of others. But uh, I think if we can really get their attention and I think if the administration and the Congress understands that this is very much in the public interest, first of all, secondly, that it's much less expensive than any strategy you've been following so far, and thirdly, that is deeply, deeply in the interest of the future of this country to start dealing with these states and dealing with these terrorists before they get organized enough to come and attack us. Uh, if we can convince people of that and keep the attention of the Congress and the President, then I think we can get it done, but it's not going to be easy. We need everybody's help. Terrific. Thank you very much, panel. This uh, concludes the formal portion of our program. You should have all had on your seats a copy of the, uh, bipartisan, of the bipartisan Task Force report. I hope you will read it. It is worth reading. It's also available on the USIP website. The task force will now turn towards de developing specific recommendations 
uh, building on this initial task force report. Those should be available in January uh, or shortly thereafter. And uh, you should look for our report, final report at that time frame. I want to congratulate Governor Kane and Congressman Hamilton for the receipt of the Patriot Award. Uh, I want to thank them for their wise and effective leadership of this task force. They are uh, the reason a lot of us signed up for this duty, and we're delighted to have you. I want to thank the Bipartisan Policy Center for co-hosting this wonderful evening. And I think we should all join that uh, on this 17th anniversary of 9-11, let's let the memory of those who lost their lives that day recommit us tonight to work together to ensure that this country never suffers such a loss in the future. Thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts.